Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. friends, Elisa Childers here. With all the pain and all the suffering in our world, it can sometimes be difficult to imagine that a good God exists. And if He does, why does He allow so much evil in our world? Answering this question is called theodicy. And it's a question that not only keeps some people from faith, but it's a question that Christians wrestle with as well. So we have a special guest to help us wrestle with it on today's podcast. Today's guest is the Associate Professor of Christian Apologetics at Biola University. He's authored apologetic software as well as written some encyclopedia and journal articles. He's got a really great, really informative blog at his personal website, clayjones.net. You really want to check out his blog. You'll be glad you did. So fun fact, he formerly hosted a nationally syndicated talk radio program called Contend for Truth, in which he debated Buddhists, Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientologists, Mormons, humanists, and PETA. So he's no stranger to controversy. Uh, so it's no surprise that his recent book touches upon a very sensitive and controversial topic, Why Does God Allow Evil. In fact, that is the title of the book, and it's really fantastic. I just finished reading it, and you can get that on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or ChristianBook.com. So, Clay Jones, Clay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Elisa. Now, okay, so I have to ask you to start out with Scientology is really big in the news right now. What was it like debating a Scientologist? <laughs> well, the, the guy didn't stand a chance, frankly, and I don't. That might be a funny way to put it, but they're not used to really having their ideas challenged. And uh, for instance, L. Ron Hubbard once said, 
uh, before he started Scientology, he said, writing for a penny a word, he was a, he was a science fiction writer, he says, writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. He says, if anybody wanted to make a, really make a lot of money, they should start their own religion. <laughs> right. uh, and then one day he did. Of course, Scientology says, no, 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 he never said that. Well, it was in like Time Magazine, he did <laughs> say that. Uh, and then, lo and behold, he starts his own religion. There so, you go. Uh, anyway, there's there's just nothing. It's just take, if you take Hinduism and Darwinism and put them in a blender, that's what you really have with Scientology. Oh yeah, that's interesting. So you teach a class at Biola on the pro- what in apologetic circles we refer to as the problem of evil. It's why does God allow evil? Uh, from what I understand is what kind of inspired you to write the book, which it took you 22 years to write. Is that right? That's right. It took 22 years, yes. Well, I get, you know, it's a deep topic, so I guess it takes some time to <laughs> to really write about it thoroughly. Uh, so I was first made aware of your work on this particular subject at the EPS conference a couple of years ago, where I heard you lecture on it. And I just have to say that of all the answers that are out there, uh, as to why God would allow suffering, why God would allow even extreme cases of evil. Yours is the clearest. Yours is the one that has actually helped me the most personally to make sense out of why God would allow so much of this stuff to go on in our world. So typically, apologists and theologians, they give some sort of answer along the lines of this. You know, God allows evil and suffering into the world because of Adam and Eve's sin which can seem like a bit of a shallow answer for some people, but you actually unpack this in a way that really brings home what this is all about. So some people would say, hey, it's not fair that we should suffer for the sin of a couple people who lived thousands of years ago. So Clay, can you unpack that for us? Why do we suffer for Adam's sin? Well, the biggest reason, and this is something if people thought about it, it would make, I think, a lot of sense to them, and that is Adam and Eve were not just some couple some that just happened to live thousands of years ago. And then one day uh, they decided to sin and rebel against God. And now here we are in a mess. Uh, who knows why, but we're all in a mess. And, it's, uh, and so why do we suffer for this sin that this couple committed long ago? But the answer to that is they're not just some couple that thousands of years ago happened to sin. They are our parents. They are our original parents. They're the first parents of the human race. We are their descendants. And, and if people start thinking through how free will relates to parents, parents can do things that harm their children, and they do it all the time. In fact, let's face it, there's probably not any parent listening or any child uh, who hasn't thought, you know, one time or another, my, parent didn't, my parents didn't handle this right. Or the parents are looking and going, I shouldn't have done that, and it was hurtful to my kids. Uh, well, Adam and Eve made a choice that hurt us, and we are now suffering the consequences of their decision. And, and once they did sin, what God did is, is he did a couple of things that are fundamental. One of them is, is he cursed the ground. Uh, and when he cursed the ground, think about the significance of cursing the ground. Uh, that what, what kind of disease, what kind of pestilence, cannot have been enabled by God cursing the ground, looking at planet Earth and saying, I curse you. What kind of disease or pestilence could not have been enabled by that? Uh, and so that's, that's the first thing. And then God then removed them, kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, which removed them from the rejuvenating power of the Tree of Life. And so then from then on, they began to die. 
And so, and we inherited their natures, and the nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve is we inherited their fallenness. In other words, they once they rebelled against God, they no longer had this intimate relationship with God. They were now on their own, human beings on their own, doing their own thing. And once they then when they reproduced, uh, here we are, but we inherited their nature. And I point out to people, what Adam and Eve did is they sexually reproduced. Uh, and mm-hmm. we need to think about sexual reproduction just in that sense. We are the sexual reproduction of Adam and Eve. And then to take this a step further, where did you get your soul? Well, you got your soul from Adam and Eve. That's where you got your, where else could you have gotten your soul? You got your soul from Adam and Eve. In right. fact, you got your consciousness from Adam and Eve. Where did you get your consciousness? Well, even a Darwinist, even a non-Christian would have to agree, well, where did you get your consciousness? You inherited it from your parents. Even a Darwinist would agree, well, you got it from your parents. Mm. In this particular thing, we'd say, yes, you did get it from your parents, and you got it from their parents, and they, who got it from their parents, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so you got your soul, you got your consciousness from Adam and Eve. And this, of course, is, well... Uh, now the mess we're in. And so as a result, we're all, in a sense, little Adam and Eves or big Adam and Eves. We're Adam and Eves running around the world and we're doing our own thing. And I think that what the Lord did with Adam and Eve is what sometimes parents will say to their kids when sometimes, you know, your kids will get this notion in their mind of something they really want to do and you'll go, you know, that's really a bad idea. And maybe, though, if it's not too harmful, you go, okay, fine, go ahead and do it. Knock yourself out. Mm-hmm. And what the Lord did to humankind is he says, well, you want to try this out? Well, go for it. And I think it's important to note, and I know we'll talk about free will a little bit later, but it's important to note that because people go, well, why did God let Adam and Eve sin? Well, you can't give a being free will and not allow them to use it wrongly. You can't tell your daughter that she can go out on a date with a punk down the street and then chain her to a heavy kitchen appliance. That's not giving her free will. And so God gave, God created beings with free will. Uh, they used their free will wrongly. Then they reproduced. And lo and behold, here we are, descendants, replicants, reproductions of Adam and Eve who are learning here a very important lesson. If you don't like this, and of course this is horrible news, it is the bad news, in fact. Uh, If you don't like this, there's a cosmic lesson, and the cosmic lesson for humans is hate sin. Uh, If you don't like all the sin and all the rebellion that's resulted from the free choice of Adam and Eve, they use their free will wrongly to hurt their family, then hate sin. Uh, and that's a, anyway, that's a significant thing. And think about just for a minute on a smaller level, two parents, sometimes they'll drive drunk or they'll talk on their cell phone and they'll get into an accident that might injure or even kill their children. This is free will in action. That's all that is. It's free will in action. And sometimes people can hurt their kids by the misuse of their free will. That's what Adam and Eve did. And here we are. But the good news is once you become a Christian, then you're adopted into a new family. See, we didn't, we're not naturally born into God's family. You have to be, the scripture uses the word adopted. As Chris, once you become a Christian, then you're adopted into God's family. Yeah, and you know, I think it's interesting when you bring up the sin nature that we get from Adam and Eve. 
I think there are some Christians that don't really understand, or even not just Christians, but anybody that might not understand how that works because in their minds, they're picturing that when a baby is made, when the DNA is all formed, that God somehow like makes a soul and puts it into the mother's belly. And, and you're kind of saying that's not exactly how it works, because if that's how it works, we wouldn't actually have a sin nature. Well, you know, that's interesting. And what you're bringing up is what actually some Christians do hold to what's called special creation. And special creation is the belief that when the sperm and the egg get together, that God at that moment creates a soul, a perfect soul, and then sends it into the conceptus, at which time it is immediately corrupted and is worthy of death. Mm. The theodicy that I present, you can actually hold to special creation and be fine with the rest with the theodicy that I present in my book. Uh, but uh, you have an extra step if you're going to hold a special creation because you have an extra step of having to explain why on earth God would create a perfectly good soul, if you will, and then send it into the conceptus, which immediately corrupts it and makes it worthy of damnation. Why on earth would God do that? And thankfully for a traducian, that's not a, we just don't have, and that's what it's called, by the way, traducianism, that you inherited your very nature from Adam and Eve. Uh, as I mentioned, special creation is the other view. And uh, by the way, Augustine was a traducian. Uh, and you'll find throughout church history, many, many, even Calvinists like uh, Shedd, famous Calvinist William Shedd, uh, a traducian. Uh, traducianism has a lot of explanatory power that special creation doesn't. You know, my faith was challenged in a liberal church, and one of the themes that was constantly brought up was this idea that we have to dump the idea of human depravity, that we need to stop seeing ourselves as inherently sinful and start seeing ourselves as inherently good, because when God created us, he said it was good. And yet, in your book, you make an excellent case for human depravity, and you do that by giving examples all throughout history of these horrible evils that humans have committed against other humans. In fact, when I first heard your lecture and read your book, these examples actually haunted me for like three days, and, and we're going to find out in a minute that it's actually good to think about human evil. But for the moms who are listening to this podcast while they're making breakfast, breakfast for their kids, you know, let's not get too graphic, but why don't you give us some examples that you gave in your book that demonstrate the idea of human depravity? Sure. And, it, you know, by the way, when I first read the examples years ago as I was studying the subject, I found I was upset. And sometimes I'd be upset for a couple of days after reading a particular horror. I'd go, that's just horrifying. But so I decided, by the way, the reason I started studying genocide is is frankly so that no one could disqualify me from saying, well, Clay, you really haven't looked hard at human evil. Uh, you've, you're kind of glossing over it, because that's a way of trying to approach the problem of evil. We'll just, we won't look at how really terrible and serious it is. Well, you know what? I've got news for you. Uh, it is really terrible and serious. And so I started, I thought, I'll start reading, I'll start reading stories about genocide and start reading about particular genocides. And one day, I think I was reading Iris Chang's book, The Rape of Nanking, and I tell a pretty bad story in there about when Japan invaded Nanking, China in 1937, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden the lights went on and I got it. And what I got was, is all of a sudden I realized, you know, this is what humans do. 
what a lot of people, I think, that are writing on the problem of evil do is they say, well, I need to find a really horrible example of human e evil to illustrate my book with. Uh, I, they haven't gone far enough. Because once you begin to really get the point on human evil, you find that genocide is exactly, precisely human. In fact, this was what was fascinating to me. Every genocide researcher I know, to a person, there are no exceptions, none, uh, agrees that it's the average member, the ordinary member of a population that commits genocide. Sure, there's the occasional sadist or whatever mixed into the crowd, but most of the people that commit genocide are normal average people in a population. And if you don't believe me on this, read my book, because I document this. Uh, and, and not only this, but every genocide victim, this was fascinating to me, every genocide victim, like Elie Wiesel, who survived Auschwitz, uh, or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent eight years in the Soviet Gulag, and so on, or and so on. These people all agree to a person without exception that this is what ordinary people do. That they're the people are not sadists as a group. They're just normal people. And that's how you could end up having six million Jews killed during the Holocaust, but people for by the Germans, but they forget an equal number of, of, of Slavish Slavic people and others were also murdered. Uh, that the Soviet Union, uh, the millions and millions of people were killed in the so by the Soviet Union from 1917 to 1989. That in China, millions of people were killed under Mao Zedong, uh, and, and, and on and on. Cambodia, out of a total population of 5 million people, 2 million people were killed. Not, that's not just a few people that does that. And there's something terribly wrong with humankind if we can do genocide so easily. Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn asks the question, he says, where did this wolf tribe come from among our people? He says, it is, is it our own flesh, our own blood? He says, it is our own. And just so that no one too quickly takes on the white mantle of the just, let every person ask himself, if my life had turned out differently, might I too become such an executioner? He says, it's a terrible question if one answers it honestly. And I think we need to ask ourselves, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's question. If your life turned out differently, if you were non-Christian, you're raised at a different time, could you become a guard at Auschwitz? And I think there's only two possible answers, yes. And if you answer yes, it shows there's really something wrong with humankind. If somebody says no, I have two comments to make. The first one is, on what logical or evidential basis could you say that you were born better, innately better, than all the other people that have committed genocide? Uh, on the other hand, uh, I have another comment to make to them. Uh, remember, believing that you were born innately better than other people is almost always the father of genocide. That's why people right. commit genocide. Uh, and so, when, and, and one more thing about this that it's important to point out. People go, well, you can be a good non-Christian. And the answer to that is, no, you can't. You can be an outwardly good non-Christian. And there's many of those, countless number of outwardly good non-Christians. But Jesus' whole point in the Gospels was that evil's a matter of the heart. And so Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. John says in 1 John, he who hates his brother is a murderer. Uh, but see, we have these people, you know, our society is filled with people who do not, who aren't actually committing adultery. But why aren't they? Because she might get pregnant, I might get pregnant, you know, whatever. Because uh, I lose my family, I lose my reputation, I might get a disease, have to bring that home and explain that. That's new, honey. Where'd you get that? Uh, that would be awkward. But notice the calculations there are all about self-interest. They're not about goodness.
Uh, and when does somebody finally do the deed? When they've got a workaround for all of those problems. They go, I've got a workaround for all this, and then they do it. Same with Jesus. John said, as I mentioned, he who hates his brother is a murderer. Well, if you hate somebody's guts, why don't you murder them? Well, it's not because you care for the person, right? Because we've already established that you hate their guts. So why don't you murder them? Well, isn't it self-interest? I've seen those guys in the prison population, and I don't want to be with them. I couldn't pump enough iron to protect myself. That would be very bad. Uh, and and Or I, what if I get killed in the process? I don't want to lose my fam family, my reputation, uh, and on and on. But notice those calculations are all about self-interest. And so my point on all this is we have a society full of people who are adulterous murderers in their hearts, but because they're not actually doing it, they think they're good persons. Jesus says that's not true. Right. And you bring up the point in your book, you know, you talk about all these other cultures, the Nazis, uh, the rape of Nanking, and, and just things that have happened all throughout history. But then you bring it into uh, modern terms. You talk about abortion in America. And uh, you, you brought up the example that a woman came up to you and said, you know, Clay, all these other points, they really make your point when you talk about these horrors that have happened throughout history. But when you bring up abortion, it sort of discredits your point or makes it weaker because people don't actually really believe abortion is murder. So tell, tell us what you, what you told her. That's right. My friend, by the way, is a little embarrassed that she said this now because I've used this <laughs> as an analogy every time I teach ever since. But anyway, uh, yeah, she's like, well, that weakens your point. And my answer to that is that is my point. Uh, right. we're, we justify our killing. Our killing isn't so bad. And let me gross your listeners out, not too badly, but uh, I, I think, but you know, the average, uh, if you look, the, the British used to have a punishment called being hanged, drawn, and quartered, where they would hang somebody and then they would attach their, once they were dead, they'd attach their limbs to different horses and pull their body apart. That was being hanged, drawn, and quartered. If you look that up anywhere, what you're going to find is, is people describe it as barbaric. That's the word that's always used. That being, that's mm -hmm. a barbaric practice. Well, we are suctioning, and this is a little gross, and so just a warning to maybe if your kids are there, but we're suctioning the arms and legs off of babies who are alive through the right. abortion procedure to the tune of almost a million children a year, a million babies a year, and we're going, yeah, but we're good people. We're not like the Nazis. And who keeps abortion legal in our society? It's your neighbors, right? It's your co-workers. Mm -hmm. It's your friends. And sadly, and I challenge my listeners, maybe it's even you. Because if a majority of Americans stood up against abortion, abortion would end right away. But it doesn't yeah. end, and it doesn't end because, frankly, there's something really wrong with humankind, and that, and that means there's something really wrong with Americans. And people throughout the world, of course, abortion is a massive practice throughout the world. And think about, we've killed almost 60 million babies. We've, uh, we've suctioned, scraped, or scalded to death 60 million babies now in the United States. Uh, that's bigger than any other genocide I can think of. Yeah, that's a really good point. And one of the things I love about this book is that as you walk us through all of the evils that humans have done to other humans all throughout the ages, a new question really begins to emerge. And I love how you have flipped the question on its head. So it's no longer, why does God allow evil? But the question that emerges is, why does God allow humans? Which is really such a brilliant twist. 
So in your book, you actually helped clear up a mystery for me. I have always loved the genre of science fiction. <laughs> if there's a robot or an alien in a movie, like I'm in, you know, if, especially if it's an alien robot. I'm just, I, I loved E.T. when I was a kid and then Star Wars and Star Trek and all that stuff. So what does free will, the whole concept of us having free will, have to do with the problem of evil? And then how does that relate with the whole genre of sci-fi? Well, one of the biggest things is, I'll give you some plot scenarios that I've found to be very interesting. Uh, one of them, and the most famous, one of the most famous ones is, humans create computer, computer gets free will, computer then decides to destroy humans, and then humans spend the rest of the movie trying to destroy computer. And that's exactly what happened in the Matrix movies, uh, and that's exactly what happened in uh, the Terminator movies. And there's a host of other movies that carry on that theme. And when you think about it, that sounds like something else that's rather huge. And that is, God creates humans, gives humans free will, humans rebel against their creator, and decide to even try to destroy their creator. In fact, they succeed in the sense, only in the sense that they were able to kill Jesus, but that's all a part of the creator's master plan. In fact, he's going to use their killing Jesus on the cross, his death on the cross, as a way to bring humans back into relationship with him. And so what that kind of theme is picking up on the great, the greatest story in the universe, that's what that theme's picking up on. You also see that kind of theme in Blade Runner, and I know in just uh, October 6th, I think it is, the next uh, new edition of Blade Runner is coming out, where uh, androids get free will, and then they try to, they, they, they rebel against their creator, and of course, in the original Blade Runner, he actually, uh, this android named Batty actually kills his creator, uh, and so you see this theme again. But it's also in, there's lots of movies, for instance, of different kinds. For instance, the movie Adjustment Bureau with Matt Damon and Emily Blunt, where I won't go into a lot of detail on the plot, but the bottom line is Matt Damon, the character, is told he cannot see Emily Blunt anymore because, you know, the, that would ruin the the plan that he had that uh, this that God, roughly speaking, has for them. And Matt Damon says, you know what? He says. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go with her come what may. I don't care whether what you want. I'm going to go after her because all I have are the choices that I make and I choose her. And not Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Aliens Come Down and Take Away Free Will. That movie's been made, by the way, four times now. The most recent made by Nicole Kidman and then a pretty unknown actor called Daniel Craig. But, but so these free will is constantly in our movies, and I think it's just simply people are drawn to the concept of free will and how it works. And here's the, one of the points I make in the book. I've never known, and I taught, tell many different analogies of you know is how uh, sci-fi analogies. I've never known an author of a free will book or movie, not ever, not even one time, to think that regardless of how much suffering ensues, that humans would be better off if they didn't have free will. I've never seen it. Uh, if any, and I've been telling audiences this for years. I've never had somebody come up with, oh, you missed this, you need to see this. It's just not true. By the way, if you want to see a delightful movie, I encourage everybody to see Ruby Sparks. Uh, it's an, I think it's an HBO production. There's a little bit of some coarse language, but other than that, it's a clean movie. But I it try look, watch Ruby Sparks. It's again about free will. And by the way, uh, the guy, the the the, the 
the uh, the hero, the, the star of the film, uh, is named Calvin. Guess what? That's after in Free Will, uh, as oh, in that yeah. Calvin, and he creates through his writings a girl who actually materializes and becomes a real person. I won't tell you any more than that, but it's a delightful it's a delightful film, and it's again all about free will. Yeah, so it's interesting that even the secular world gets this. They get that despite all the evil that it might produce, human free will is worth it. Human free and will is worth it. It's worth it, and, and, it, and some bad is going to come with that. So in your book, you make a great case for Christians to really think about and ponder eternity, which tends to be an overlooked point in the problem of evil. So what does the concept of eternity have to do with the problem of evil? Well, sadly, you're, you're right, and I think it's one of the reasons that so many people that try to write on the problem of evil come up short. Usually, or often, I should say anyway, the only reference to eternity when it comes to the discussing the problem of evil, and I'm not going to mention any names, I wouldn't do that, but there's one very, very famous author who wrote a book on the problem of evil, and he talks about all the horrors that are going on in humankind, and then he finally concludes it, like literally the second to the last page, he says, well, we don't know why God allows evil, but we'll find out in heaven. Wow, so I just paid $12 for that? We'll find out in heaven? Now, my point is, we'll certainly know more in heaven, but I, my, my point is, is I think we're going to, we know that heaven is a huge part of it. And one of the things is, to start going through this, one of the important points is, if eternity is true, eternity will dwarf our suffering here to insignificance. It will dwarf our suffering to insignificance. If when your child was five and you inoculated them against measles and you made that child cry for, let's say, 10 minutes, and that child lives to be 100, we can calculate exactly what percentage uh, of uh, pain and you, of that child's life you caused them to suffer. And that would, it, it's like point zero 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 zero. I think there's five zeros, I put it in my book, or six percent of that child's life if the child lives to 100. Uh, if that child complained that you made them cry for five minutes, you'd think you'd raised a pretty stupid child. Right. Uh, and, and when it comes to eternity, if eternity is true, our suffering here uh, is very small. It's, 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 it's basically zero, a zero percent of eternity. Of eternity. It's, not, it, it's negligible. And that's one of the first things we need to take into consideration is that we're going to live forever. And I suggest to you that eternity is boot camp, or excuse me, that this world is boot camp for what's going on uh, in eternity, that we're learning lessons here that we need to learn forever. And so uh, that's another big part of my whole, uh, the theodicy that I present uh, is that, you know, God is teaching us things here that we need to know. So will we have free will in heaven? Well, yeah, there's the key question is, is will we have free will in heaven? And my, there's only two possible answers to that, of course, yes or no. Either yes, we're going to have free will in heaven or no, we're not. Uh, I argue, yes, we will have free will in heaven. Uh, anybody who says, no, we won't, is this is slightly speculative, but I don't think it's that speculative. I mean, for crying out loud, in Revelation 12, there, I think it's verse 6, it says, and there was war in heaven. Well, how is there war in heaven if beings didn't have free will in heaven? So the question then is, how does God give us free will in heaven? 
and not have us use it wrongly here. And that's, to me, the most important thing, and that relates directly to what we're learning here now, is that we're learning something very important. We're learning sin is stupid. But I'll, let me just say, because this worries people, I've had people go, oh no, there's free will in heaven, maybe I'll sin and start the whole thing over again. No, the Lord's smarter than that, and he knows what he's doing. But remember, I'll just do this very quickly, because there's not time, obviously, to elaborate. Remember, in heaven, there will be no world run amok. You won't be one click from pornography in heaven. Uh, you won't have a body like you do now. You won't have a flesh that's, that's so prone to sin. You won't have uh, the devil tempting you. The devil will be in hell, and his minions will be in hell. Also, another point is, the fourth point is, hell will be an eternal reminder to free beings of the horror of rebellion and now here's the big thing, and I usually hold a pen up to my eye when I, and I talk about this in the book, I'll hold a pen up to my eye and I'll say to the audience, how many of you would like to see me jab this pen into my eye? <laughs> and, you know, people are like, wow, what, you know, is this guy kind of freaky or what? And I just go, no, I could do it. Do you want to watch me jab this pen into my eye? And most people are appalled at the thought. Uh, and I finally say, well, you know, I'm not going to jab it into my eye. Do you know why I'm not going to jab this pen into my eye? Because that would be a very stupid thing to do. And I'm too smart for that. But we don't give pens to babies. Why not? Because they jab it right in their eye. <laughs> right. uh, and, and, but I'm too smart for that. And I tell you, if I live a trillion years from now, assuming I at least have the mental capacity that I do today, I'm never going to intentionally jab a pen into my eye. Now, why did I say all of that is because we're learning here that sin is stupid. That's what we're learning. We're yeah. learning that rebellion against God is stupid. And at the judgment, we're even going to have a further education of the horror of rebellion against God. And I kind of throw out a thought experiment, as you know, and I say, think about it. There's 7 billion people alive today, and they're going to have their hearts and motives exposed. If that took 10 minutes a person, that's 133,000 years. Uh, and, and that's just 7 billion alive today. What, I don't know how long the judgment's going to be, and I encourage people, don't get caught up in, I don't know how long the judgment's going to be. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is, though, it's a significant event that's going to not just be over in a minute, and that's going to be a, quite an education for everyone of the horror of rebellion against God. And I, I just can't emphasize enough. And see, God is using our education here on the horror of sin. And I think angels, by the way, we know the scripture says in the Psalms, the angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him and he delivers them. We know that angels are watching us. Heavenly beings are learning, are also learning from us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, was that his plan was that now, was that now through the church, that's you and I, that the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The wisdom of God is being made known right now through you and I, the church, to principalities and powers in the heavenly places. They're being educated by what's going yeah. on on earth. And when you put that all together, I mean, heaven has a eternity, I should say, has an awful lot to do with what's going on here. Well, that is absolutely fascinating stuff. And if you want to get more, get his book, Why Does God Allow Evil? It's fantastic. You'll be glad uh, you did, and you'll be greatly enriched spiritually by reading this book. And again, you can visit Clay's blog on his personal website, clayjones.net. Clay, thanks so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Elisa. 
listening to this podcast and would like to sign up to receive my blog posts and podcasts by email, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button. Or you can simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.